0: From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugez, and this is The Explainer.
1: Team had a massive opportunity to make this a learning moment that would have, of course, itself gone viral. So cynically, from a business perspective, it would have been a smart move. But more importantly, from an education perspective, because the exact target audience they need to reach... Who's so focused on cancel culture are the people who are gonna be running the businesses and running for office in the future. And I'm I'm actually kind of nervous about that. So I think they lost a huge opportunity. But did they make the right business decision? Of course. If you have a seven million dollar a seven-figure ad spend that's paused, what else are you going to do?
0: Welcome back to season six of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Cancel culture is rapid-fire ostracizing in the time of social media mob mentality. Stories of people drummed out of their organizations over positions taken sometimes decades earlier fill the headlines and chirons of cable news. Compliance expert Marcia Noreen-Weldon explains the good, the bad, and the ugly of today's phenomenon. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Marcia. So nice to have you back with us.
2: So glad to be back. We seem to be in the age of both banishment and faux canceling uh, sort of to promote oneself. The left does it to the right, the right to the left. They do even do it to each other. It's kind of a feeding frenzy, but at its roots, fairly unremarkable. How did we get here? You know, I'm not really sure. I think about, right, so I'm
1: going to be 53 next year or this year. Right? Back in college and in law school, I was a protester. Right, I did the boycotts. I did the sit-ins. Um, you know, call the dean, all kinds of stuff. Uh, we were protesting about diversity, apartheid. We talked about divestment. And so we did sit-ins, letter-writing campaigns. This took time, right? We actually had to have a strategy. We had to meet. We had to discuss. We had to sit there to figure out how we could actually get allies because we didn't want to alienate anybody. Remember, I was in law school and I, was, uh, I called into the Rush Limbaugh show because he was covering the protests at Harvard at the time. Um, but even to let people know that happened, we had to actually use... Posters on the campus and we had to stuff things in mailboxes because nothing was instant, right? And so now we have social media. You have a post or a problem, you post about it. You get angry, you post about it. You want to boycott, you post about it without even thinking what's the potential ramification for the employees or the suppliers of that company. Um, you go viral in minutes. There's no time for reflection. There's no time to sit there and think about it. Um, And we respond instantly. So we respond rather than reflecting. So the issues that I and my colleagues were processing about 35 years ago, 30 years ago, they're still here. But we had to actually think about it. And more importantly, we strategize and we try to get allies to the cause. Um, Maybe it's because we were in college and law school that we were taught to reason and debate and think about things. But I don't know if that's only it, because I have a number of people that I went to law school who are fully engaged in cancel culture. So I'm not sure that it's just a generational thing, even though back in the day, the term cancel culture was typically thought of for a younger generation on Twitter, and now it's become nomenclature. Interestingly, there was just a poll that came out a couple of days ago by Harvard, Capps, and Harris that interviewed 1,945 registered voters. Uh, They found that 64% of the respondents believe that the growing cancel culture is a threat to their freedom. 36% said it wasn't a threat, but 36% that said it was a big problem. And 54% were concerned that if they expressed their opinions online that were unpopular, they could be banned or fired. That's a big problem. That's not something that we worried about as much 20, 30 years ago. Um, and so the ramifications could be swift, not just to a public figure, but to an ordinary working American. And that's why I'm glad we're having this conversation.
2: Uh, Just recently, we saw the case of the Teen Vogue editor pushed out before she even stepped into her new role over racist and homophobic tweets she posted when she was a teenager and for which she apologized and deleted in 2019. Atlantic writer Graham Wood calls for a sin jubilee for teenagers. Who decides what's good cancel culture and what's bad and who gets to set the rules? So this is an interesting question
1: because, you know, we're at Miami Law. So we have students that are from age 20 something to 50 or 60 something. I don't think that anybody wants to be judged for what they said 10 years ago or what they said when they were 17. And for some people, what they said two weeks ago. But I think it depends on who you are, what you did and what you learned from it. Right. We can't say that we're the land of opportunity, the land of second chances, and we love a comeback, but we cancel people and their lives are never the same. Right. So How old were you when you did something? What did you actually do? What did you learn? Have you learned from your mistakes? And then more importantly, what's the power that you have? Right? I used to do um, training for companies. I still do training for companies. And I would tell people, I really don't care what you say in your personal life. But if you have the chance to fire somebody, your your views are going to come in the workplace. That's going to be a problem. If you're going to incite violence, that's going to be a problem. Um, So there are races who don't discriminate. I've worked with many over 30 years of practice. It's really interesting. They have objectively racist views, but they, they promote and encourage people of color. It's weird, but it's true. So Conde Nast, who owns Teen Vogue, had a lot of bad press about diversity. Was she hired because she was a diversity hire? Possibly, but in fact, there were press reports that she wasn't even the most qualified woman of color they could have hired. They hired her knowing of these issues. Um, would this have been a big deal a few years ago? Maybe not. This company took a risk and it didn't pay off. Apparently, Ulta Cosmetics, a company with a seven-figure ad spend, paused their advertising when the scandal started. So what choice did Teen Vogue have? They could have stood by a brand new editor who was alienating part of their subscriber base and one of the biggest subscribers, but they didn't. And that might make perfect sense. Should they have hired in the first place? That's a different question. But what a teachable moment it could have been had they actually had a panel or a symposium making this issue, bringing in members of the Asian-American Pacific Islander community, bringing in other kinds of people, not to lecture, not to make people feel badly, but to say, let's talk about this. Let's talk about social media. Let's talk about the mistakes we've learned from the past. Let's talk about why this is inappropriate and hurtful. Teen Vogue had a massive opportunity to make this a learning moment that would, of course, itself gone viral. So cynically, from a business perspective, it would have been a smart move. But more importantly, from an education perspective, because the exact target audience they need to reach who's so focused on cancel culture are the people who are going to be running the businesses and running for office in the future. And I'm, I'm actually kind of nervous about that. So I think they lost a huge opportunity, but did they make the right business decision? Of course, if you have a $7 million, a seven figure ad spend that's paused, what else are you going to do? But the, who does who decides is the question. Should it be the marketplace? Should the subscribers have said, we're going to dump, we're going to dump Teen Vogue. And that's the message. Um, Teen Vogue didn't even, I don't think, really waited for that. The The, the money talks as is often the case in these situations.
2: Right, the power of the marketplace, exactly. Um, Speaking of that, so uh, Gina Carano, who played the character Cara Dune in the hit series The Mandalorian, recently upended her career, with Disney removing all the press she had done for the show and Hasbro scrapping plans for an action figure after the former MMA fighter doubled down on anti-mask and voter fraud posts on her social media. How are the two cases different or, or how are they the same? You know,
1: first of all, you said the magic words, Disney and Hasbro. Okay, They can't <laughs> afford any scandal, right? With Teen Vogue could have, you know, they play the edge. They could have done something. It's not Disney and Hasbro. They don't have the, the time. The energy, and Lucasfilm, They don't have the time and energy, right? So she made fun of people wearing masks. She also shared a post uh, comparing being a Republican to being Jewish during the Holocaust. There was a Twitter campaign and then she was fired. Right. This is a crazy situation because just a couple of days ago, um, former North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp called her a Nazi on real time with Bill Maher, who himself is a huge critic of cancel culture. And when she actually said that, the audience booed. Um, And Bill Maher canceled, canceled. um, He didn't cancel her. He challenged her. He said, you know, what does it mean to be a white supremacist? Because Heidi Heitkamp Pulled back. She said, well, not maybe not Nazi, but she hangs out with white supremacists. And he's like, well, what's a white supremacist who determines what that is? Um, and by the way, now there's a rehire Gina Carano campaign that as of yesterday had 75,000 signatures. So what's a company to do? Right. But the question, again, is pure business decision. Right now, did Disney and Hasbro look at her history? I'm sure she didn't just start saying things that some people might find objectionable just yesterday. Um and it may or may not have been a big deal, but again, the marketplace speaks. The difference between now and 30 years ago is the marketplace speaks instantly and things happen instantly, again, without a lot of deliberation. And now what are they gonna do? What if this campaign to rehire gets to a million signatures? Are they gonna bring her back? So at what point do they make the decision of we made a decision, we're gonna stick by it? At what point do you ignore social media? Because the people who go on complaint complain on social media are not necessarily the big fan base. So there's probably a whole lot of people who wish she was still there. Should she be still there? That's, again, a business decision, an ethical decision. But again, I think these things are happening um, more often. But you know what? Gina Carano is going to be fine. You know, she's got money. She's going to have another job. She may have a talk show at some point. She'll be fine. Again, I'm more worried about kind of the average American or the average person that goes on Twitter, says something uncontroversial, says something controversial and then loses a job, loses a business, those kinds of things.
2: Well, um, let's switch off the marketplace um, and talk a little about like, is there legitimate historical canceling, like renaming U.S. military bases versus political swordsmanship practices on on both the left and the right?
1: This is an interesting question because there's also the 1619 Project and those kinds of things. So for those who don't know, this was a project that was put out by the New York Times. A number of journalists spoke to a number of historians, used the the, the year 1619 when slaves first came to the United States to basically reexamine the lens of history through slavery and, and think about those kinds of issues. Got a Pulitzer Prize, et cetera. Uh, lots of press, some school districts wanted to adopt some of the um, teachings in their school districts, and now there's a number of, of state legislators that are basically saying we 're going to defund you, and we 're going to not only not say you can 't use it, but we might even defund you so you cannot discuss sixteen nineteen project at all um, under the theory of that it quotes uh, it, uh, it tries to uh, erase uh, slavery i 'm not saying slavery it tries to erase the the history that our country was founded on, which, by the way, was in large part slavery, right? So that means not founded on slavery, but built on slavery, because they they claim that it wants to deny or obfuscate the fundamental principles. It doesn't really make much sense. Now, there have been some concerns from some historians, reputable historians, that there are some potential factual inaccuracies, um, and the New York Times has responded to that. Uh, That's a bigger issue, right? So if there's factual concerns, those are legitimate reasons to say, let's pause, let's think about it, let's balance it out. But to say... It tries to obfuscate what our founding fathers stood for, when in fact that's exactly what they're talking about. You know, yes, Thomas Jefferson had slaves. Yes, George Washington had slaves. Talk about it. There's no reason to hide it. You know, we should learn from our history and not be uh, trying to to cancel those who want to talk about it. Um, you look at the statues. You know, I have you know the statues, military bases, etc. I'm of two minds of that, right? So. I think there's some people objectively that you say you don't want a statue. You probably should not have a statue. Not probably. You should not have a statue of Adolf Hitler, right? You should not have a statue of any number of people who, uh, you know, were involved in genocide, war crimes, et cetera. But there are some notable figures in history that many people revere in the South. And instead of taking them down, perhaps put another plaque or another statue next to it that says, let's talk about why this person, um, Joe Smith is here. Let's talk about those historical times. So that when people go by and look at the statue, when school do field trips, they see both sides. They say, this is what was going on in the times. It's important to know. We cannot erase. We can't cancel our history, right? So at some point we have to provide a balance to it, which is what I think the 1619 project was trying to do. And what I think if you put, um, if you put other statutes or other plaques or other things in front of them, that, that does something. Naming is, you know, I actually went to a conference, a legal professor conference a few years ago at the plantation at Amelia Island, Island. And there was a huge outcore, outcry by many of the professors like, why are we coming to a place called the plantation? We should change the name. I, by the way, did not agree with this. I, I don't think the hotel has been changed the name because a bunch of law professors are upset about it. Now, law professors being law professors should have known that a large percentage of the law professors were probably going to be upset about that place and should have picked someplace else. When we talk about naming and those kinds of things, we have a choice. The military, by the way, if you're in the army, you got to go where they sent you. But other places, we have a choice, and I think we should vote with our dollars, vote with with you know with reason, debate, versus saying, "I don't like it, I disagree, cancel," which, by the way, is its own type of bullying to some extent.
2: Sure. sure. Um, while we're uh, talking about uh, the 1619 project. I can't let you go without asking about critical race theory and workplace diversity training. We saw President Biden overturn the previous administration's prohibitions of the training, but ongoing are state Republican legislatures attack on teaching critical race theory in state colleges and universities, arguing that it's coerced speech and indoctrination. So is this intellectually rich or or re-education camps, as Michelle Goldberg opined in the New York Times?
1: So there's two different things, right? You have critical race theory and you have workplace diversity training. I've been involved in workplace diversity training. I still do some. Um, and obviously right now the key buzzword is diversity, equity, inclusion training. There is a reason for that. Um, there's also talk about unconscious bias training, although there's a lot of studies that say unconscious bias training isn't nearly as nearly as effective as people would think. But I think you have to do something, right? The problem that, and I'm not justifying what the Trump administration did at all, What they did say was that you've got to be, you don't want you to have any training that might talk about kind of anti-racism, critical race theory, et cetera. I think without even really examining what was actually going on out there. And by the way, is some diversity training terrible? Yes. Is most of it terrible? Absolutely not, right? By the way, some of everything is terrible. That's just how the world works. But the Trump administration really took advantage of the fear of quote, cancel culture and of the outrage around cancel culture. But what they did is they said, federal government contractors, subcontractors, you can't do this kind of training. What happened? Hundreds of diversity trainings got canceled overnight. People were confused. What was an even bigger thing, we've been talking about business in the marketplace, the Chamber of Commerce, all of these major business groups, which are not particularly liberal, came out against this executive order saying, we need diversity training. We need this kind of training in the workplaces. It's important um, to have this done, which was a big surprise. And now that's been rescinded. Um, All is well in the land. And and, but I do think we need to look at how do we do training? Having done training, a lot of times, the first thing I would walk in is tell people is that if you don't like black people today, you're not going to like black people after a few hours with me. And if you don't like women today, you're not going to like women after a few hours. I'm here to talk about what you can and cannot say in the workplace, because by the way, you're in a private sector workforce. The First Amendment does not apply to you. We can tell you whatever you want to say. What you say on the outside is totally different. And like I said before, unless what you say on the outside affects your ability to do your job, affects people's perceptions of you as a fair and impartial manager, etc., unless it tarnishes our brand, right, um, etc. So if you are tweeting or on Facebook and you are a member of the "I hate all minorities" group and you are the proud supporter of it, it's going to be really hard for us to put you in front of customers, etc. Okay, that's people understand that intellectually. I think some training that's going on today um, may, in fact, alienate the very people you're trying to train, right? Because the people who are who believe diversity training is a good thing, they don't even need to go to the training. The people who you really need to reach, if you tell them you are a terrible person, you must repent and atone for your sins, they've already shut you out. And then the training is completely ineffective. And that's where I worry that the left and the right and the center, again, need to sit down and talk to each other in a room and say, we all agree that these are the baseline problems. How can we talk to get some changes, whether incrementally or grand changes? With critical race theory, um, it's a, that's a critical race studies. That's a, a, I'm a proponent of anything that makes people think and makes people uncomfortable because if you don't get out of your comfort zone, you never grow. So for so long, there was a slant in school the other way, right? I didn't learn you know, we had Black History Month in school, you know, you hear the same speeches, you hear the same people who invented what, and then it's done. And then you don't think about it until the next February. But we didn't learn about Japanese internment camps in this country. We didn't learn anything about what happened with Native Americans. We never learned about, you know, what happened with Mexico and Texas, et cetera, until I got to college. That's because I went to a super liberal college, right? (laughs) So where, you know, but... So I think what when you're looking at what a critical race theory is trying to do is to try to bring some balance to say, let's look at racial constructs back in history and how it affects us today. If you look at the battles we're having about voting here in 2021, we're still arguing about access to vote. Um, And I tell people if voting wasn't important, people wouldn't try to suppress it. If the information that people are talking about in the critical race theory movement wasn't important... And let's say I'm talking about the factually backed, well-researched conclusions that are coming out. People wouldn't try to suppress it. People always try to suppress what they're afraid of. That is not. That is a type of cancel culture that is, I think, even more egregious because you're really taking out a, a whole swath of education where when people need to know. Again, not in a blameworthy kind of way, but this is where we were. This is why the laws are constructed the way they are. This is why there's so much anger in the streets right now that you don't understand. These things are important for us to grow as a civilized society. So I get really concerned about that kind of cancel culture.
2: Hey, um, is there anything you'd like to add in closing? For instance, do we need to retire the phrase cancel culture? Has it outlived its usefulness?
1: So I think it was never useful. So, yes, it's its usefulness. Um, You know, that's like about accountability culture. I'm not sure what the term would be, but I'd like us to have students learn about speech and debate, logical reasoning and civics at a really early age, right? And we need to have those kinds of courses all the way through high school because people need to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. You know, like I said, Gina Corona, she's going to be fine. But what about the private individuals that lose their jobs and businesses? Now, by the way, sometimes that needs to happen. Sometimes you say hateful, vile things. And people need to shut you down by just not coming to your business and not patronizing you. And people should express their views on social media, et cetera. And if you incite violence, you should go to jail. Right? That's very different. Um, but let the marketplace of ideas take over. Let's have boycotts or boycotts where people say, I'm not going to vote buy from you, but I'm going to buy from Catherine because I support Catherine's views. Right. So you have a boycott. That would be a lot more. But that takes more thought, more deliberation, more discourse more time, more expense. And I think we're so used to a quick fix society that I'm mad, I'm going to press a button and I want everybody to know how mad I am. And then I'm going to engage in a war as opposed to saying, let's engage in a dialogue. Um, And finally, we talk so much about mental health and compassion and anti-bullying, but cancel culture is the complete antithesis of all of that. Um, So it stifles good ideas because there are going to be people who will say, I might say this, but I'm not trying to get in a Twitter war, you know? And, and Catherine, as you and I know, I, I actually hesitated about, do I even want to do this podcast? Because I'm sure I'm going to say something unpopular, and I may be canceled, and that'll be fine, you know? I'll I'll, I'll, I'll be okay, right? But you're giving us way too much power. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, okay. be okay, right? But, but if there are great ideas that are being stifled, or even great ideas that should be debated and maybe put to rest, but at least have the debate because who knows what could come off. That's not good for anybody. Um, and that's what I really worry about. People afraid to to say what they think, um, what they really believe. Uh, or people who might run for office who might say, I don't know, those tweets I did, you know, five years ago, I can't get rid of them or somebody might have screenshot of them because that's also been happening. People have been screenshotting stuff and then saving it for later. Look at how many people may not run for office, may not run for judge we could really use to serve, who may have learned from their mistakes that are instead going to say it's not worth the trouble. That's what I worry about.
2: Sure, sure. Um, Well, thanks again for joining us. This has been both troubling and enlightening. And thanks for having me. All right. See
0: you around. Thanks again. I know. Thanks for joining us at the Explainer for a whole new season of interpreting legal issues in the headlines. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Ugas. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's International Law and COVID-19 Virtual Symposium on the Impacts of COVID on Human Rights and Public Health on April 12th and 16th. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.